Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses for an audience of ambitious entrepreneurs who are listening to these interviews, building their companies, and often coming back and doing interviews themselves. Joining me is someone who created a marketplace and I've been so excited about marketplaces as businesses that I've done interviews with them uh, over the last 10 years, started with me being, this is so, so hard. How did you even make it work? To then moving on to, oh, this is so easy. Now there are no code solutions to now coming back full circle, circle to today's guest, Ryan Smith. He runs a marketplace called LeafLink. It's a marketplace for wholesale transactions in the cannabis space. And I feel like, wow, this is such a brilliant idea. And at the same time, this is such a daunting space to be in. And then I think, well, this is such a brilliant space to be in because it's so growing. And basically, I, I'm all over the place, but full of excitement. And I want to understand how he did it. And uh, hopefully, we'll also get to talk a little bit about some of the past companies that he started. And we could do it thanks to a phenomenal sponsor. It's called HostGator. You've heard me talk about them for years. That's the company that hosts my website. If you're if you're sitting back and you're thinking, I want to start something, Go to HostGator, will you? Go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy and start. But I'll talk about that later. First, Ryan, good to have you here. Awesome. Yeah, Andrew, thanks for having me. How much uh, money is it, is changing hands on your platform? Give me a sense of the size. Monthly, just north of uh, $250 million. So we're facilitating about a third now of all legal wholesale cannabis uh, in, the, in the U.S. And give me an example of the type of thing that would be bought and sold on your platform. What's typical? Yeah, so use case would be if you're a purchasing manager at a local dispensary that has a license, you'd use that license to log into LeafLink, and you're probably buying 30 to 50 different brands on your shelves, a lot of like CPG looking goods, as well as like flower, like the plant itself. And you can go on LeafLink and create one unified cart from all those very many different companies, hit submit, and then we help, you know, coordinate the, the delivery of those things. How much of that comes to you? Uh, so we right now monetize through a few different points, but roughly three to five percent is uh, what we're what we're taking on the transactions we've monetized. I heard you talk a little bit about it on the interview with Nathan Latka, where you talked about the different ways that you were monetizing. Could you go over that? What was the f well? What are they now? And then I guess we'll go over how you got here. Yeah, so I think B2B and B2C marketplaces are very different in, in how they ultimately monetize a lot of idiosyncratic just complexities to each different supply chain and vertical. Uh, what we, when I spoke with Nathan, probably almost a year and a half ago now, we were just beginning to monetize our, our GMV, our gross merchandise volume of these transactions. And so we started out by just charging a flat SaaS fee to be on the platform. We're not a plant touching company. So it was really important for us to be a service provider versus a participant in these transactions. Flat SaaS fee with every company that sells on the marketplace. No matter how much it, they sell, it was a flat fee just to be in the marketplace. Well, if you have more brands, it will cost a little bit more, uh, you know, a few hundred bucks more a month, depending on how many brands you have. And so what we did was prioritize over the first three years of LeafLink building that liquidity. In the last 18 months, we've begun monetizing the GMV through payment solutions, and also we launched a shipping network. So what we allow companies to do now is consolidate all of their payments through a financial product that we created to begin to own those transactions, uh, which is called payments on LeafLink. And then we also uh, forward those orders along to verified shipping partners who hold a license, and we charge another fee there. So those are three main uh, revenue lines on top of a data and ads component that we also service. How'd you come up with the idea? For, for monetizing or for LeafLink? For LeafLink in general. 
so uh, my co-founder, Zach, was actually at eBay before LeafLink. I've always loved marketplaces. I've been selling things on B2C marketplaces from like very young age. Things would go missing at my parents' house and they've you know, probably been now in my PayPal account. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Zach and I were talking a lot about, this was six, five, six years ago now, but why is there a B2C marketplace for every subcategory of product? And then you go one step higher in these supply chains and there's not very many B2B marketplaces. And so we thought that was interesting. And then the cannabis industry, which was really just Colorado, this is 2015, 2014, we thought, well, maybe there's a really interesting opportunity here to bring tech from day one into this completely new space and really help these companies empower their brands and sell virtually the way you know, other more legacy industries have done highly manually. And that, that's what gave rise to this leafling concept. What's another B2B uh, type of transaction that doesn't have a marketplace? Most verticals don't. It'd actually be easier to tell you the ones that do. Like I think FAIR has gotten a lot of uh, press lately. There's a company called Provia that does what we do in liquor. Uh, There's a company called RigUp that does it for service providers in in the energy space. But most industries, like if you think about coffee, if you think about... um, you know, pharmaceuticals, they really do depend on a huge sales force going to all these many different buyers, retailers, you know, distributors and selling them one-on-one. So still highly manual processes. And that's what we're trying to virtualize. Like maybe you don't need a sales force of 5,000 people to be able to touch every retailer in the country. Maybe you can use, you can use a platform like LeafLink to really streamline that process. Why didn't you go with a marketplace with a, with a vertical that already existed? Why'd you decide to go for something growing and new? Legacy verticals have deeply ingrained and multi-generational processes that I think are much more a disruption game. And we think that we're really playing more of a definition game where we're coming in and there's not much to disrupt in the space. There are markets now that have only ever known to order on LeafLink because we launched with like a state like Michigan, for example. Mm -hmm. And so for us to become industry standard, to be able to capture, you know, one third of all wholesale getting in early and defining versus disrupting, as we say, I think was a a huge component of that. So a bit of a strategic pick. What we want for the space in three, five years is other verticals to look at cannabis and say, that's not the wild west anymore. That's who we want to be like. And so then, then they can begin to disrupt. You came up with the idea roughly 2015. You've processed your first order 2016. What did you have to get in place in order to start? Uh, on the technology side, really fortunate that like partnering with my co-founder, Zach, he's our CTO. He built the MVP of the of the platform. We had one other engineer on the team and getting that up and running in its most basic sense. Like I remember when he was on the sell side, I was on the buy side and we made sure that we actually went through uh, for our first clients in Colorado. But getting that like baseline offering up, do people want to actually utilize something as simple as what they do in their own personal lives on B2C? For their, di- for their job, their day job B2B was what we needed to test out. And some magic moments after that when people began using it without us, you know, our hand on their hand on the mouse. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's, where, that's where it started. So marketplaces now, the software for them, at least the MVP software is fairly easy and accessible, right? What did I see that you paused? What a, what well, you it pause? depends, what, you depends what you mean. Like there's a ton of B2C templates you could easily get your hands on to sell to consumers. I think on the B2B side, we've obviously built everything in-house. There's just a lot of things to learn about a space that's still learning about itself to really build into that that full experience. But um, but yeah, on the B2C side, there's a ton of marketplace, simple templates you could set up and and run with. 
Well, even for billboards, I remember interviewing an entrepreneur who said, I'm buying billboards at my software company. It's such a pain. These guys are so outdated. Somebody needs to create a marketplace. He jumped in, created a marketplace and did well. He eventually created his own, but he started with just an off-the-shelf solution. I wonder what was different for you that you needed to, or what you thought you needed to add into the first version because of the cannabis space. So taking something off the shelf that was a template was something that I had done previously before LeafLink. And one of my, I remember one of my 2015 resolutions was to partner with, a, I'm not technical, but a technical co-founder to, to build it fresh with just product and client information from the beginning. And that was really how we approached this build versus, versus others. But like some of the first things we had to build in is here's a unique example. We only work with licensed companies. And so we needed to build in a permissioning engine on the back end of the platform that allowed the license, which is different in each state to match up in certain ways with who they can interact with, who they could even see on the platform. And that had to exist day one, not a huh. template thing to find, but that's something that we built in house. Day one, even though you were only focused on Colorado in the beginning, you still wanted yep. to have that in place. Yep. Wow. What is it that certain states can't get? So no state, if you're in Arizona, you can't buy from someone in Colorado, obviously can't cross state borders. That might actually change, uh, you know, as the, as the industry federally hopefully begins to progress. But um, you, you, not only were we adjusting what companies they could also interact with, but also like what kinds of product types. And so there are certain, um, there are certain categorizations, there's cultivators, there's distributors, there's brands, there's retailers, they don't all work with each other in the same way. And so even though it was within one state, there was different things that each had to see on the buy and sell side. And, and there's a lot of those kinds of complexity that we built out within the state themselves. Oh, wow. All right. I, I get you. And I, I totally forgot that you can take it outside of a state, right? Because other states may not even allow it. You could be a criminal yeah. for walking outside of your state. Yeah, we're we're not we're not one marketplace. We are 27 separate marketplaces. Like if you're in California, you can just see other California operators. Same thing in Michigan, Colorado, et cetera. And that's beyond the leaf. That's also for for products related to it. No, so it's only for the leaf product themselves. So if you're a, a, a battery for a vape pen, that can sell cross border, um, but but not the case for plant itself. Okay, so you had it up and running. Did you get feedback from any of the local stores while you were building it? Did you talk to any of the manufacturers? You did. Yep. I spent, uh, we both spent, I, I probably stayed in more Airbnbs in Denver. That's probably like a record that I have than anyone else. Um, but Zach and I spent most of 2016 out there physically with clients. The industry is incredibly resilient, dynamic, but it does have trust issues just given historically, you know, what the history of the space is. And so being with individual, with these people, with our clients in person, learning from them, working with them, watching how they pack boxes, watching how they talk to their clients, how they do demo days, all these things was really important. And so we were, our feedback was, and the thing we built from the very beginning was always like sitting next to the client physically. And I think that was a huge part of the initial what do you mean, success. What'd you learn from the demos that you wanted to incorporate? You mentioning Airbnb, uh, famously, they learned that people need bigger photos than they were getting on Craigslist. And so their photos became giant. One of the main things we learned when we were working with some of the brands and the sell side companies were, was like, 
that we had this goal of creating a marketplace, but there was a ton of other inefficiencies to, to build to at this time, 2015, 2016. So for example, if they were tracking their inventory, they couldn't use off the shelf ERPs. They couldn't use QuickBooks even. So there was a whiteboard with all of the, this was actually in like in some of our early decks, uh, pitch decks, but there's a whiteboard with all the products they're selling and the inventory, what's been reserved, what's been sold. And, and they couldn't use platforms out there. So we thought, all right, well, let's get, let's give you something. We're not going to build an ERP for you, but let's get you off the whiteboard. Uh, let's build an integration to QuickBooks, you know, if you can use QuickBooks. And so there was just a ton of operational inefficiency that we began building out some of these baseline SaaS tools to just create some process for them. And, and then that was part of how we sparked the marketplace. ERP, meaning the, the email software company like, um, like MailChimp. Uh, ERP meaning like um, um, like an enterprise resource planning tool. Why couldn't they use that? So most larger companies aren't willing to accept revenue that's even like a degree or two from the space. Wow. So they won't service you as a, this has changed a good okay. amount, but at this time it was very much like if you're operating the space and you drive any of your revenue from this industry, we can't work with you. Meaning even software vendors can't work with you. It was, yeah, great. And it still happens. It's not as bad as it was, but it was really bad in the beginning. Do you feel like a scumbag? Like maybe there's something wrong with me that no one wants to even associate with this? Well, so when I sold my last company, we sold it to this publicly traded REIT that was very like dark wood, kind of old school, not very innovative. Uh -huh. And so I thought I want to make my bet. I want to make and invest my time, make my bet here that I think like nothing's going to change about how people feel about this plant society will catch up. And so these people are operators. At the end of the day, they're running companies and they need the support. So we wanted to build for that. Maybe now we can talk about that previous company, Trupoli. What's the name mean? Uh, so the concept was based around democratizing real estate investing. So I grew up in New York. My family's in real estate, very old school industry um, and thought it'd be really interesting around crowdfunded equity to build a way for people to invest in different syndicates, opportunities at, at, at smaller amounts. And there's some great companies doing it now. Cadre is one, uh, Fundrise that have really grown to a level that we didn't even get to back in the day. Uh, but the idea was really to allow companies to or allow individuals to invest the way more sophisticated investors do. The name, uh, which I thought was great, much better at the time, was a mixture of true monopoly. So the idea was that the best way to you know, monopolize some of these opportunities would be with all the capital you could access uh, from individual investors. And I was kind of inspired by um, one of the first crowdfunding things ever done was around the, the rock, around um, the Empire State Building. And was Harry that? Helmsley did, yeah, the Empire State Building, Harry Helmsley bought it with like almost 10,000 investors. They all sat around a, a large stadium in New Jersey and each signed the subscription agreements. Uh, I didn't realize like he did that. I, yeah. I, I remember reading about Harry Helmsley growing up. He, um, cause he autographed the whole skyline, right? You'd see these big buildings in the Helmsley hotel or they'd have the Helmsley mm -hmm. sign that he came out of school in the great depression, couldn't afford to buy this real estate that he was trying to get into. And so he decided to be a manager working for banks that had acquired real estate, but didn't know what to do with it because they're not real estate people. And so he became the manager. And I know for a long time, he was managing the empire state building, but people assumed he owned it. And so you're saying, I didn't realize this, that when he bought it, he had that many people all yeah, it was like a few thousand invest. It was like one of the like first and largest syndicates. And so the idea was, what if we could bring together the power of that many investors around other opportunities? And that's kind of what led to the, the Troopley idea. 
And you came up with the idea when you were in senior year of school, right? You said, I want to start some kind of firm company of my own. Mm -hmm. You were working yeah. between classes. Am I right? Uh, yeah. So I started it second semester, senior year. Both my parents, I should say, are also entrepreneurs and were obviously very supportive of that. But the idea was after graduation, raise some money, begin building out a team. And it was much smaller than LeafLink. We never got past 10 people before it was acquired. But uh, yeah, started second semester, senior year. Why'd you sell it? It's kind of a crazy story. So we were, we, we had raised a small amount of money uh, around like 300 K and there was a handful of people on the team and we were pitching certain, we probably had a few dozen clients. So we would service a fund. So if you were a general partner of a fund, we'd help you virtualize how you communicate with your LPs. And as a result, we wanted to create some access to the new deal offerings to the larger base of users on the platform. We pitched this large publicly traded REIT that had like 250,000 investors. The two founders had just recently become billionaires, got through like half the sales deck. And they're like, this is great. Uh, explain to me, why would I pay? Why would I um, invest in the watch? What was the phrase? He was like, why would I uh, invest in the watch shop if I have to pay the retail price for the watch? And I said, yeah, you should probably just buy the watch shop. And he goes, effing exactly. <laughs> send me a number and we'll do a deal. And I was like, all right. And that obviously came, to, it just made sense. Uh, it made sense at the time. We were like 18 months in and uh, it was a, a good win for a good small win for you know everyone involved. What was the number? Uh, so we sold the company for, it was a, it was a $3 million deal. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you had a million in the bank at that point you left school millionaire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But we, I owned uh, the vast mm -hmm. majority of the company. Were you always entrepreneurial? Was this in your blood? I know it's in your family, but. Yeah, I mean, we were always like, I was the kid in our, in our building that was putting up signs to like walk dogs and, you know, water plants, take care of your home when you're on vacation. And um, I was always working, selling things online, buying things in lots, selling them in pieces. Um, I was always, yeah, entrepreneurial in that way. I never thought it was like, oh, this could be the full, this could be the thing you do. Although, oh my, although my parents did do something similar, but I had some great like coaching mentoring through college that helped with that. Yeah. Didn't you also start, is it eco campus in college? Yeah, that was, um, that was a, a tree free paper company. We were selling to the university and a couple of like local businesses, much smaller, uh, much even smaller than, than Trupoli, but it was a good experience, like having actual inventory, running sales, reporting, uh, we didn't raise, we just kind of self-funded that one, but, uh, it was a good became a student legacy company. I think it was bought and sold like three or four times after we sold it for nothing worth mentioning to a couple of other students. You know what? I tried to research your family. I can't find it. I feel like part of it is that you don't have this outrageous name with like 70 vowels so that there were 70, I don't know, uh, syllables in it. And it's a lot of Smiths. Yeah. There are a lot of Smiths. And then the other thing is New York state, New York city real estate people are not well-known outside of their circle. They're super well-known in their circle, but not outside, right? Can you tell me a little bit about your parents? Yeah. The, so my, my parents run a, a real estate company in New York that does leasing, manage, bro, leasing management brokerage and sales. They also own some properties, um, but it's, it was founded almost, I think, well, almost thir over 30 years ago now by my mom. So she's the CEO. My dad's the president. It's a minority women's business enterprise and has been for 30 years. So she was, and they were very much ahead of the you know curve of, of how important these issues are, even just over the last several years. And um, and yeah, they've, that's the company they've that they've been running. And I've always obviously at dinner when we were growing up, it was always talking about 
what deals they're working on, who's giving them, you know, a story. And, and we would be part of those conversations, my, my little sister and I, and that was a part of maybe why I was always doing something entrepreneurial along the way. Do you consider buying real estate as a kid? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I always, I was on the first time I was on the board of a building, I, I think I was like 16. I don't even know how we swung that, but, uh, it was me what on the board. Of, what's that? What do you mean on a board and the co-op board? Yeah, it was like a, it was a condo, but yeah, it was okay. the, the board that managed this building. It was just like a good way to get exposure and because your and, dad and mom wanted you to get in there. I also found it like really, I found it really interesting, and we spend so much time working like the way what we build. Sometimes, at least in tech, we can't quite touch it. It's not you know you get paid virtually, you spend money virtually to build something physical and walk in and like that is real and in around you, I think has always been like super interesting to me. So uh, I don't think it was totally forced. I was, I was wanted to learn more. I don't know if you know, Syed Balki, the guy who owns WP beginner, that's a blog that he started when he was a kid. And then he started buying okay. all the software in the word space space. Do you no, know what? I don't know. WordPress space, excuse me. Anyway, he gets so excited about talking about the real estate that is that he buys. His eyes light up. That he makes money in software so he can own some real estate. He's got gas mm -hmm. stations and a bank that you weren't fired up for that. It, like I, it doesn't seem like that's a draw for you, is it? As a, even as a way of saving your money. Uh, so I mean, the question is, do I have like do I have real estate investments? The answer is like very much yes, and I do find them like super interesting. You I do. actually think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I help out my parents with, with their stuff. I have a couple of things on my own, but it's a nice different thing to think about. That's so tangible and simple compared to, I think, you know, what we spend time virtually building at LeafLink. And so sometimes it's like on my weekends, like I'll spend time going through like free cash flows or looking <laughs> at like offering memos for something new. And, um, and it's funny, I'm definitely a participant on some of those like fun, for some of those, crowdfunding sites that, you know, we tried to build as well. So it's just a lot of love, love the industry, but you know, this is not what I'm working on at the moment. What type of places do you have? And we'll move back into LeafLink in a moment. Yeah. Um, mostly, well, last year I invested in a couple of hotels. So that was uh, rough with obviously COVID and then a, a good handful of like opportunity zone developments. Um, those are like, I think always pretty interesting. And so some of those are, you know, student housing or residential properties. Well, I get it. All right. Does this feel a little too personal? I'm watching your face. Uh, people don't always ask these questions, but I do find the stuff all very interesting and, you know, happy to, happy to talk about it. What's your long-term <laughs> vision with real estate? It'll always be a, like a very much part of part of my life. And I do think it's like one of the interesting things that truly has like legacy tied in. So um, I'm also very like, I love architecture as well. And I think it's something that just is interesting to me. And that also happens, I guess, to could make money, but it'll always be it's just like a, a project that I always enjoy on the side and maybe one day it becomes something larger, but right now it's something to something different. All right. Let me bring you into my first and only sponsor for this interview. It's HostGator. I'm actually on one of Saeed Balki's articles on WP Beginner about how to turn WordPress into a um, into a marketplace. And basically, you're installing WooCommerce and a couple of plugins. Let me ask you this, Ryan. If someone doesn't have any technical chops yet, they don't even know if there's a business somewhere, but they want to start a marketplace B2B because there's money in it. What's one that you'd suggest that they get into if they go to HostGator and sign up or do anything else? like a, an industry vertical. That's interesting. Yeah. Let's, let's give them an idea for what they should jump on. I think, um, 
I would have said construction, uh, but there's a company doing it now, uh, but between like Home Depots and, and contractors. I think another one that's really interesting is coffee because it's an agricultural product. So something similar to LeafLink, but they're also heavily branded with, with typically higher margins. And when you think about who owns the retail shops, a lot of them are like mom and pop. So they're looking for the next new thing to sell to their consumers. So I think coffee is interesting. Uh, and you know, my friend worked at a, he was a sommelier. He said that coffee makers would come in and pitch him aggressively on using their coffee. So you're Good. saying all that money that they're spending could go into online experiences. And then for the store owners, they don't have to wait for the person who's aggressive, but have more options. And it's more you than coffee. You're sampling on coffee link or whatever you want to call it. But uh, that's similar to what people do on LeafLink. What what else would they sell beyond the coffee itself? Is it all the other stuff that goes into running a coffee shop? Probably, right? You could you could probably sell coffee uh, filters and the different machinery and pots. I bet there's like some services that they have to use. Yep. They probably need like, how do they buy their uh, receipt paper for their machine? Like all that could be in one place for them. All right. If you're out there listening to me, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. I'll say it slowly in a moment. I'm also from New York. Are you from New York? Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in the city. I grew up in Queens and I moved to Manhattan and I just learned to talk fast, 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 but it sucks as a podcaster. Um, I guess <laughs> go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. You'll get their lowest prices possible. With one click, you'll be able to install Word, WordPress. With another, you can install WooCommerce and you could start playing. If you have any problem setting this up, if you want to talk through this idea of creating your coffee link or any other idea that you got from this and you're bringing it to HostGator, email me. Andrew at Mixergy.com is my personal email address. And I want to find out about this and I want to help you along as you do this. So whether it's that idea or anything else, and if you're hosting it on online, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Great hosting package, inexpensive, reliable, and will grow with you. So you launched the first version. When it came time to, to figuring out how to charge, how did you decide to not take a commission, which seems like the natural way to do things? Most B2C marketplaces do that. And I, the way we thought about it was, well, there was, there was a restriction first. So one of the North Stars of LeafLink is we're not a plant touching company, which means we, unlike our clients, don't need to get a license in each state that we operate in. And so from the very beginning, if we, according to a lot of the regulations in different states, if we called it a transaction fee, it's mm -hmm. seen as a broker of the transaction, in which case you then need to be licensed yourself. And so we didn't want to go down that path. So we said, let's just keep this simple, flat fee to use the technology, and then we'll, we'll monetize later on with some additional services like payments and, and shipping. Um, and so that was really where, where it started. We also weren't, so there was the regulation bit, but there was also this like conceptual bit around do B2B marketplaces, are they quite the same? Are they the same as B2C? So for example, on B2C, I get to meet get to meet you today, and I'm willing to pay 14% for someone new tomorrow. In B2B communities, they are, are tend to be pretty insular, smaller. There's a lot of constant repeat transactions, uh, and yeah. so to charge a fee for discovery is is tougher because there's not as much of that in these types of larger transactions. Um, and so that was another concept to think the difference between B2B and B2C. That if you are charging for a, if you are charging a transaction fee for someone who's going to keep working to get a couple of people who are working together, they're eventually going to cut you out, right? Because they're potentially, or you provide enough value where they they happily pay. But I think being disintermediated is like and always a concern for mm. for B two C marketplaces. And so part of the thinking we did on building out how payments are servicing our customers and and shipping and data and ads, it's all really. 
Um, there's such an incredible uh, additional value provided by those services and that they can use them if and when they please that I think it doesn't, it actually does the opposite and reinforces that connection. And so did you have any issues with uh, charging credit cards, with collecting payment? Oh yeah. Uh, what they? Oh man, some, some, some dark memories. That I'm like, I've, I've definitely swept under a carpet somewhere. So similar to what we were talking about before, where, you know, some software companies don't accept revenue from the space, same deal with some real estate merchant processor companies and the cards themselves, the names, you know, and so we were constantly, we had like three or four backups for, for credit card processors. And sometimes our customers who had similar challenges for their businesses would have to use their personal cards. Yeah. And sometimes their cards would, they would charge something else, not because of us, but they might get a hold on their card. And so we had this constantly, constant need to renew cards. We were getting money orders sent to the office. We still do. There's a, our head of finance has a, a stack, something like this of just things that come in every month, checks and then money orders because people are so massively underserved by financial institutions. Yeah. And that rolls off on us, even though we're not planned touching that has, there've been serious challenges there. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and, and you lose out on one of the benefits of SaaS, which is people just set the payment and forget it. And that set it and forget it doesn't work for you because they have to keep adjusting and adjusting and adjusting. Yep. Keeps What's, us on our toes. Uh, keeps us on our toes. So I'm imagining that a lot of the people you were talking to when you were staying, in, staying at Airbnb in Colorado ended up on your platform. Those were the the buyers, right? How about the suppliers, or was it both? Uh, so both are both are on the platform, and most the way we really kicked off the marketplace was by focusing on the supply side. So like one of our first clients was obviously in Colorado, a company named Keith Cole. They're on LeafLink now in several states. Uh, they were the ones that we sat with, you know, in 20, 2015, 2016. Uh, and then we, what we would do is once we had suppliers using some of those enterprise focused tools, we would then go with their sales reps to all the different retailers and basically say, oh, Andrew, this is free for you. You know, you're going to order from Keith Cola. Why don't, you, why don't you sign up on LeafLink and order through here? It'll have all the latest pricing and photos and et cetera. And then we did that, you know, thousands of times. There's over over 5,500 retailers on the platform now. But in the beginning, it was it was that manual. And it was you personally doing a lot of that. Oh yeah, I was all I was like all over it. We had one once other salesperson. She was great uh, at the time, but I mean, don't get to do as much of that now. And I honestly, probably can't even do that now with COVID. So it was like fortunate to be able to like, get that close to clients in in the beginning. Any issues? I'm imagining for the store owners, there wasn't a hesitation about going online, was there? Uh, some people were concerned about that because they were afraid uh, if they got, it wasn't clear, you know, 2016, Trump had just won and Jeff Sessions was put in place and the industry right. was very nervous what the attorney general was going to do. If, if someone like Lee Flink got a request for information, would their full business history be there? So a lot of those have waned, but that was something in the beginning. Like they didn't want to, they were, they were concerned about putting information out there, even though they were licensed. That was surprising. That is surprising that it didn't, uh, it didn't shut them down. And so how do you respond to that? If they say, look, you can have all my data. Everyone's going to know exactly how much you're buy, how much I'm buying, which then means that they could figure out how much we're selling. Yeah. I mean, well, ultimately the information is owned by our clients. It's their own company information. And the way we've, we, we've never had to make that decision, but I think if, if it ever became a challenge for us, I think we all in the industry and obviously at LeafLink were 
that we're on this path for, for brighter times ahead. And so this concern of today won't always be the case as the government catches up to the way society feels about this product. And so fortunately, I think that's the path that we, that we went down, but it was, a, I mean, there were people were concerned about getting, you know, raided by the FBI as yeah. well that happened in California. So it went beyond data, but it kind of extended to every part of their business. I also wonder, you focused on LeafLink. You could have named it something a little bit more broad, right? Why, why Leaf instead of considering now more things are being decriminalized? What do you think of that? There were a lot of these, like we talk about that, like V1 service providers, tech providers to the cannabis space. And they named themselves things that just didn't feel professional. Didn't, I think they kind of played into some of the assumptions that people make outside the space about the space. And so we thought one thing we really wanted to, to deeply ingrain in our culture and also to provide the best experience for our customers is that like, we are a technology company. We do serve the cannabis space, but we're not a cannabis, we're not a cannabis technology company that has, oh, you know, feel free to use the, use the product at work, you know, or like this is a kind of free for all that things will just work themselves out. We were very diligent about like making sure we were seen as professional. And so the name Leaf Link was, we thought, uh, a broader way to, you know, paint what no, we're No, I, I get that part. It's the leaf part that now you're limiting yourself to cannabis with the name. Is that intentional? You saying, we're just focusing on cannabis. There might be other things that get decriminalized. Someone else will create the leaf link of that. But this is our focus. We are just focused on cannabis. So like being that, being that narrow is definitely where our heads are at. Is that always where we are forever? Can't say, but uh, right now that's the only thing that we think about and focus on. So I saw on your site, you launched in 20, where is this? 2016, about a year later, you hit 100 million in annualized orders. What was the mm -hmm. toughest part about getting to the 100? I think the, the, hardest, the hardest challenge for us there was in order to create liquidity on the platform, we're looking to create you know, like behavioral patterns of our users. And one of the difficulties in the space is they have exceptionally high turnover within these companies. So if you think about the types of individuals that maybe not as much anymore, but would work at a, at a dispensary, they may not be there for all that long or, or they're adding new people or they're growing quickly or they're, they're, you know, people are leaving. And so we were constantly having to retrain the same company clients with mm. different faces uh, because the industry was growing so quickly that, that, and so that was a challenge. There'd be companies that we brought on, loving it, using it you know, for six, nine months, and then they go silent. And we found out it's because the, the champion there is not there anymore. It's like, all right, well, add them back to the funnel. We got to, you know, engage them again. And that was that it's still a challenge in a certain degree, but I mean, in the beginning, very much so. And so when they don't, when they don't work with you, who do they switch to? How do they end up starting fresh with their purchases? They're, they're usually texting, emailing, or phone calling, you know, kind of calling each other. It was, there's not another tech platform that they go to instead. It's just, goes back to being super manual. But the business and doesn't break when when they stop working with you, meaning little things don't stop arriving. On in in those days we were really the shopping experience was was really just a shopping experience. And so if you didn't want to if you knew the name of the person you typically buy from, you could just go direct to them. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things we built in on the buy side now that makes that less the case. On the sell side we, because we had those enterprise tools that were massively operationally valuable to them, that happened much less. It was more of a, a challenge in the beginning when the platform was simpler MVP on the buy side. Are you a smoker yourself, by the way? Or a uh, 
Not, not regularly. Um, I also live in New York, so it's not legal here, but, uh, yeah, on occasion, I think, um, on occasion. What's easy street gummies. It looks like there's a lot of search traffic from easy street gummies that goes to you. It's probably one of the, one of the brands, uh, one of the brands on the platform. Oh, yeah, we have almost, really almost 2000 brands. So, some companies, uh, highlight, you know, that they're on LeafLink more than others on their other you know, landing pages. And so the traffic com- comes in that way. So then the first, the first source of revenue was just charging people to be on the platform. And I guess the upside of that too, is that you're incur by not charging people, charging your suppliers more, every time they sell more, you're encouraging them to be on the platform, to not worry about developing long-term relationships there. What was the next, uh, of the three, uh, sources of revenue for you? The, the one that came after that was uh, advertising. And so there's a ton of regulatory limitations around, you know, in most states, you can't take out a billboard or take out a public advertisement in any way for your cannabis company, mm. but they still are building brands. And so we have here on the marketplace buyers at their action point. And so they built advertising solutions out to, you know, educate buyers about what new brands and products had come about. Oh man, I saw, I think I, I heard you say what the percentage of your revenue, uh, what, what percentage of your revenue advertising consists of. I don't remember the number. Can you say? Uh, so from, from uh, Nathan's chat, it's definitely become less just because we've really ballooned mm. on some of the payments offerings and things like that. But uh, it's less than, it's less than 10% of our revenue. Uh, by the way, your freaking design looks great. The design of your site is just so, it almost feels like a spa. You know what I well, mean? Our, our, our marketing team worked incredibly hard on that for like well over a year. And I hope they listen and, and appreciate that. Cause yeah, that does look it, great. But. It goes a long way. I mean, I, frankly, when I first heard of you, I just went over to see, is this just some shady backroom online thing? No, I looked at it and then I said, I'm kind of intimidated to talk now to Ryan. It looks <laughs> well, that freaking good. Like we want to bring customers, not just a great experience for the cannabis industry, but a great experience period. And that professionalism is something that we always wanted to build in there from the enterprise level. So then what about um, the payments? What's the payment? Pl- uh, what's, what's your payment solution? Most marketplaces start off with facilitating payments and they build out uh, more sophisticated financial tools on top of that. Uh, similar to other uh, things we talked about, you, we couldn't take you know Stripe or PayPal off the shelf and just integrate them to create payments. So we built out, we started on step two and now we're working our way back to step one with a financial product that allows customers to consolidate their payments um, and pay on terms. So net 15, net 30. Um, and then we are the you know intermediary that allows them to virtualize that part of the transaction. And so those are the trend. That's how we really began to monetize those monthly GMV numbers. I hate to say it, but I'm going to be open. I still don't understand. So I'm on the page for LeafLink Financial. Mm-hmm. If what does it allow a vendor to do? To charge, get paid up front, but then the store doesn't have can pay over time. Am I right? Get that's terms. right. Yeah. So we're, we're we're instituting net terms between buyers and sellers. So if you're a retailer. Let me set the scene of like what the what current world yeah. is. If you're a retailer, a brand will sell to you, drop something off, and they will then get paid in cash, maybe part and parcel, uh, check sometimes, ACH sometimes. Lot not a lot of transparency, operational clarity, just you know how that goes back and is logged. But it's so often say, a physical thing that goes from one person to the other, from the buyer to seller, a check, a money order, cash. 
And the sales rep sometimes has to go back twice if they don't have enough cash on hand to pay for this $20,000 order. Burns a lot of time. The way, the way it works, the way you pay on LeafLink is we have a side fund that purchases that invoice. And so we say, if you're the buyer, we'll, um, if you're the seller, we'll get you your capital within 24 hours minus a fee. And if you're the buyer, we'll let you pay net 15 or net 30 based on credit profiles we've built uh, for our customers that allow them to have net terms like in any other wholesale transaction. And can they have bank accounts now to do the ACH payments? Most, we only work with companies that do. And so they can have bank accounts. There are definitely challenges around them. Most people in the space are serviced by credit um, by local credit unions, but uh, they most do have bank accounts. And credit unions can, you can still work with credit unions, I imagine, right? Yeah, like locally or like state chartered financial institutions are more open to servicing the space than like a federally chartered, you know, larger bank with a bigger name. Wow, this is, this is incredible. First of all, it's kind of incredible that you have to go through all this and it feels like such an incredible opportunity for you to have recognized this at a time when it's it's becoming natural that the rest of the country is going to accept this, right? There might be one or two holdouts, but they'll, they'll be just as odd as uh, New York not allowing people to buy beer or, or buy mimosas at 10 in the morning on a Sunday, right? It's a legacy. Crazy but- rules. Yeah, I think that like the ideas that make most people originally feel uncomfortable, personally, I know my co-founder too finds most exciting. And I mean, People love this product, regardless of if it's legal or not. And so why not why not regulate it, keep it safe, and allow the government to make some money along the way? How'd you do with funding? I saw I saw you raised, what was it, just a, about a month ago, you announced $40 million from Founders Fund. Yep. Yeah, so we've raised just over $90 million to date. We worked with Lair Hippo in the city for our seed round, a fund out of London called Nosara for our A, Thrive did our, our Series B, and then founders recently closed our seed. Everyone's obviously participated along the way, but um, I've been really fortunate to work with some like incredible partners. And for all of those funds, we were their first cannabis-facing investment. So we really invested a lot of time in being compliant, diligent, and having all the information to make sure like our ducks are in a row to to be able to service space professionally and you know bring bring that professionalism to the top of the thing about the industry. Do you have any issues with with raising money? I know that a lot of LPs and funds don't allow. Well, they have moral restrictions, but I, is that what it is? Vice clause. But I imagine that it wouldn't be for LeafLink, right? Uh, it's totally a challenge. Uh, it so is. So so some funds, some funds have vice clauses even around liquor. Like if they're getting capital from sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East, they can't even invest in liquor facing companies. And so one of the questions I always ask is, do you have any LP restrictions around looking at the space? And if you do perfectly cool, like I'll tell you about the industry and why you should know about us, but, but yeah, some, some, some groups just can't still can't invest. It's funny though, because most funds, it's so obvious what's happening in the space, but sometimes a fund will, will will capital been raised two, two, three years ago and they're still deploying it. And so they haven't yet built into the new fund it's, it's old fund documentation. So the new funds won't have that limitation, but you know, it's still sometimes time doesn't always line up that way. Who are some of the individuals who believed in you and banked on you guys at LeafLink in the beginning? Uh, I think uh, you know the seed round that we raised was probably one of the most challenging. And um, Lara Hippo, like Taylor Green over there, uh, Eric Hippo himself, uh, Andrea Hippo, they, they made a bet that most people said no because of that vice clause. 
and because of the way the freedom that they have and how they're operating, this was in 2017, early, early 2017, mm-hmm. they made that bet. And I think for us, that was just like incredibly powerful at the moment to, to close that round because getting a name brand to partner with us was, they were way ahead of the game. And then based on the numbers that you gave me earlier, you're doing over 12 million a month in you, like your fees, right? Yeah, we're, uh, we're a, a, a bit higher than that. Um, but we've grown, yeah, we, we, three, we did 3x our revenue in the last year and, and looking to you know, do a similar multiple of that in the next 12 months. All right. So when I asked you, what's a win for you? You said, you know, one of the things that's interesting to talk about is the difference between e-commerce, excuse me, between business to business marketplaces and consumer marketplaces. What are some of those differences? I think one of the main ones around B2B are just like the, and part of the reason I think each of our, each different industry will have its own B2B marketplace is because there's just all these complexities to how different industries operate uh, that you have to account for. And I think the idea of sparking liquidity in a B2B marketplace is in some ways, in some ways more challenging, some ways, you know, less, I think, than, than B2C. B2C, you always have to rally you know, consumer interest to create the liquidity network effect. On the B2B side, if you bring in the right and most powerful players in a vertical, I think you can, you know, pretty quickly spark some liquidity in that market. But there's just a lot more enterprise tools that need to be built to be relevant and operationally valuable day in, day out for these companies on the B2B side. Uh-huh. I think that creates an enormous amount of opportunity to further monetize beyond. I mean, when we were meeting with funds five years ago, they said, okay, I heard the word marketplace. You must monetize by take rate, right? What is the take rate? And it's like, well, actually, I don't think it's quite that, quite that simple. Like, and now where we stand five years later, we, are, we have a SaaS fee, we have an ads fee, we have a data product that we sell, payments, shipping fees. And so those are all things we get to build in as being just like this crucial component of how these companies run their business, which isn't always exactly the same for, for B2C marketplaces. I think it's, you know, there's a lot going, going to it much more, but I think there's a lot of differences. What's a take rate? So the, the blended take rate across, well, it's it's a hard question to answer because there's you know, we, have, we have five different revenue lines. No, I mean, but what does first, take rate mean? Oh, what is take rate? Yeah, take yeah, rate sorry. Is the percentage of each deal done on the marketplace that you got it. collect for your company as revenue? Got it, got it. And so they assume so like that's eBay what it was. has like a fourteen percent take rate for something got like it. that. You know, got it. By the way, I looked at uh, Zach who worked at eBay. He worked at eBay on the uh, eBay Enterprise. I'm guessing that's their that's that's the, their B2B product, right? That's right. It was their uh, B2B focused product. Well, even more interesting than that, he worked at LimeWire, which was another one of these like hated products for a while, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? I, uh, uh-huh. So when Zach, we used to, when we used to meet people or do or interview people to join the team, Zach would never say that he worked at LimeWire. And I used to say, I used to bring it up because people have like, it, it, everyone has a memory of using that platform, right? And so he, you know, yeah, he was at LimeWire. I think it was on the product team back then, but, but yeah, like super funny. Uh, there were some like legal challenges around that product as well, but, uh, Tons. And, but you know, what's, experience. you know, what's interesting. They all seemed also to the world, like scumbags, these guys who created this software, either pirates or also <laughs> we can't touch them. How many of them ended up creating these amazing businesses and proved how freaking brilliant they are. Am I right? Like the yeah, found- I mean that that's like music sharing, right? That those platforms started that idea, and and more than that, the guts that it took to stand up to an established industry to be 
in some ways in the business press and the other press ridiculed and talked as like this be ostracized or potentially be ostracized, ostracized for the rest of their lives. And then in the end to just have the guts to stand up and say, I'm still going to do this and just carry on. It's awesome. The difference for us is that we want to be, instead of having it be another company like iTunes that builds the music store, we want to grow ahead of and lead the space into like being that, you know, that fashion, that more, you know, professional provider that helps the, the, the industry get where we know it's going. Yeah. What do you think, what do you think the industry is going to go and where do you think you'll be in, 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 the, in the industry 10 years from now? I think near term now that, um, and very sad day in DC, but regardless, uh, I think now that the Senate is controlled by Democrats and the White House as well, I think probably in the very near term we'll see some form of decriminalization. Um, I think that'll probably on come the federal on the federal level. On the federal level, yeah. yeah, definitely. I think it'll probably start with allowing companies to use banking institutions, which to me is effect- effectively like de-, de facto legalization. Uh, right. There's a Safe Act and the Moore Act that are that are both kind of pending or waiting for Senate uh, approval. Um, I think 10 years from now, the industry will be of, of equal or potentially greater size than the liquor space. And I think what's really interesting about what's being created here is because of the lack of service from all of the older, you know, antiquated solutions that every other industry rides on, this space has had to put, and us included, an incredible amount of investment in the beginning to virtualize things from day one. And I think what that is going to end up meaning that we become the model for others to emulate on how to run their supply chain, have this marketplace, which is LeafLink as the foundation of that industry. Um, And I think 10 years from now, you'll see cannabis in, it won't even just be its own industry, it will be an ingredient in products that touch many other industries as well. It's a, it's a little ways out, but that's, I think, what we're, what we're heading towards. And then all those people who want to add cannabis to their coffee, to their something else, they'll be on LeafLink. Or on at the least that the additive you know, bit that you do put into your coffee or if the coffee is infused with, with, we actually do have THC infused coffee on LeafLink right now, but yeah, something more broadly accessed. All right. The website is LeafLink. I Truthfully, I'm giving it out, but it's not like people are going to go on and say, all right, great. It's time for me to go buy because Andrew just talked to me about it. It's not consumer facing at all. And that's one of the reasons why I especially appreciate you coming on here. You're not here because you're going to close more sales. You're just, why are you here? I appreciate it. But what's a, what's the upside for you? There's something special happening with B2B marketplaces beyond just what we're creating at LeafLink. And I think there's still a ton of education to be had by your viewers, other founders, investors on like what that means, how to become, how to think about these kinds of opportunities. And so sharing the story about what we built here on the B2B side, there will be more of this. And I think that's an important thing to put out there. And would you want them to come to you for investment, for advice, to get to know you at all, or you just want to? Yeah, if you're building, I mean, if you're if you're building a B two B marketplace, love to you know be you know to meet. You can reach me at ryan.smith at leaflink.com. Happy to share things we've learned. I think there's this beautiful relationship that we have with a number of other B two B marketplaces in other verticals where we share. There's like this whole think tank among us. It's a small group, but uh, we want to continue perpetuating and growing that. So definitely, like, it would be great to connect with someone that finds similar interests. All right. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for doing this interview. And I want to thank HostGator. If you're out there and you're starting a marketplace, go check out. This is going to be your MVP. I understand you're going to make it much better, but if you want an MVP, if you want to get started, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy, get a great low price and start that up. Or frankly, just even a WordPress site or so many other can be built on HostGator. I host on them. You should too. Thanks so, thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks, Andrew. Bye.